This is the word of the Lord. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed, when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much um, for this, your day. This is the Lord's day. We have come into your home to sing uh, our praises to you, to hear your word, uh, to draw nearer to you, to gaze upon you, to worship you, and and thereby becoming more like you. We pray, Lord God, today that we would um, be less concerned by the end with ourself and more concerned with your son, that we would be less concerned uh, with accounting things to our own benefit, and be more concerned, Lord God, with have a deeper understanding of the value, not only of our soul, but the souls of those around us. We pray, Lord God, that as, as you open your word to us, that you would open our hearts and minds, and that uh, we would not remain as we are, but that we would become more and more like our Lord, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, and amen. amen. So I'm going to launch right into into this new set of verses, but we have to keep in mind where what, what this is the media context going on. Jesus healed a blind man in stages. He then healed the blindness of the disciples in stages. <laughs> but what, what we saw was that they, they were not fully healed. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And finally, finally, after all of us, the readers, waiting for eight long chapters, <laughs> they say, oh, well, you're the Messiah. And Jesus says, okay, all right, now we're gonna, now, now you guys are ready to learn a little something about what that means. So he tells them what it means. And it angers them. And, and Peter, on behalf of every, all the disciples, takes Jesus aside and starts to rebuke him for saying that the Messiah is such a loser. Why, why are you promoting a Messiah that the world will reject? That the world will kill? That is not the, you clearly, Jesus, have not been paying attention to the scriptures. <laughs> and so Jesus rebukes him and says, stop thinking like Satan. Stop thinking like Satan. He says, listen, it's, you guys think this is hard. I'm not just saying that I'm going to go out there and I'm going to lose big. If you want to have anything to do with me, you will too. You will lose big too. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Renounce yourself, take up your, <laughs> your cross, which is to bear your shame publicly by confessing your sins, by admitting that you are not all that you think you are. By, by joining with Paul in 1 Corinthians today, he says, what, what? Who, who were you guys? Who were you guys before Jesus saved you? The pedigree, right? Your intelligence, your wisdom. I mean, how would you like to get a letter from, from your, the father in the faith? And he's like, well, you guys were dummies, and you weren't well-born, and you're kind of ignorant. But, you know, you know, God's purpose is that he's going to shame the wise in their own eyes by using you fools. I mean, like, if you really think about what he's saying, you're like, 
Thanks, Paul. That's right. Paul would have done very badly on the self-help circuit. (laughs) Deny yourself. Take up this cross. You need this cross. If you want a crown, the only way to get there is the cross. Follow me. Let me show you. And so that is the context now in which we're going to get into where he says, every time he opens his mouth at this point, Jesus, he get, not only does he get dangerous, more dangerous, he, 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 he challenges and challenges us deeper on a deeper and deeper and deeper level. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Hey, this is the Christian life. This is it. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the Christian life. If you live your life for any other reason, you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. If you do not accept the fact and, and, that you needed him to come and save you from yourself, to save you from the wrath of God, you have no part with him. Jesus does not want people to, to live in a double-minded way. He, he wants them to know what they're about. He wants them to know what they're about and what they're going to go out and do. And so he, he not only does it, right? he, he does it, he calls all these disciples so that we have a myriad of examples. If you go and you read what, what Peter and Paul say about themselves and about the, right? at one point Paul says, we are the refuge of the world. Everywhere we go, we're maligned. Everywhere we go, we're hated. Everywhere we go, they throw rocks at us. And, and baby, the, it is the good life. And modern Americans read that and think, huh, well, that's, I'm really glad we've come as far as we've come with economics and education and we don't have to live such a crass life. Could you imagine bragging about being the refuge of the world? You go to work and everyone's like, well, I was your weekend. Well, <laughs> I met with the biggest bunch of losers and we had a great time. <laughs> like on a, at a bar on a Saturday? No, at church. <laughs> there is this great exchange. When you come in the door of the faith, when you come into the temple of the Lord, there is an exchange. And, and, and this is an exchange that is very hard to make. I'm going to say some very difficult things here because Jesus says some very difficult things, but I I never want to minimize how hard this is. Look in the mirror and renounce yourself. Oh, okay, cool. I'll do that. And you go in the mirror and you look at yourself and you're like, I I don't know this person. I have nothing to do with him. And then you go out and what do you, I mean, how hard is it to maintain that mentality? (laughs) You get to the fridge and you're like, they drank the last of the juice. And you're thinking of yourself, like 10 seconds after you were just renouncing yourself in the mirror. Or, this is my favorite, this happened to me this week. Not only did they drink all the juice, but they put the empty container back in the fridge. (laughs) You know know what I'm saying? If we had our first world problem of the week, I might win. Jesus wants you to understand what is going on, and it, it is an exchange, and it is so difficult that it's like death. This is, he does not want you to miss this. He goes on in Mark 8, verse 35 to 37. For whoever would save it, whoever would save his life, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. 
For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Now, the word soul and life are the same. I'm not really sure why they translate it the way they do. But it's the same exact Greek word in both cases. So in this, it doesn't matter if you interchange it here. Because some people get very confused and they get into some Greek categories about like what the difference between someone's life force and someone's soul, and it's all very confusing. Your person, you, your being, the thing that, is, that, that God made, you, your psyche, your spirit, your soul, your mind, your life, all of it, you. If you want to gain life, if you want to gain self, if you want to gain some sort of meaningful existence, what you have to do is take your existence and throw it out. And, and you're like, what? And you're like, yes, welcome to the faith, baby. Here's a Bible. Keep coming to church. We'll try to make it as clear as we can. If you want to gain, you have to lose. No wonder Peter was angry. No wonder Peter was angry. Life, like sand, trickles through our fingers, whether we will or no, and to grasp it the more tightly means only that it flows faster from us. The one who tries to save his life for self, who hoards it jealously and selfishly, will lose it. They will lose it. The the, the tighter you try to hold on to life, the faster it will flee away from you. The faster it will flee away from you. C.S. Lewis said this in his novel, Till We Have Faces. Die before you die. There is no chance after. (laughs) Die before you die. You don't get another chance at it. If, If you aren't going to renounce yourself, if you are not going to die to yourself, before you die, there's no hope for you afterwards. That's very sobering. The great exchange in this life is in this life and not after, right? There is no second chance. You don't get to go to a special holding cell, <laughs> like where they put prisoners before court, and think, okay, maybe I'll make the decision there, right? Once I die and I go into that, you know, purgatory place, maybe then I'll think about it and then I'll make the exchange. No. Die now. There's no chance later. Now, from last week, remember that your body has a new heart. God, without asking permission, without checking if it was okay, came and gave you a new heart. It wasn't you that chose him. He chose you. He chose you, and he gave you a new heart. Now, what's happening is like transplants where someone gets a new organ, and for a while you have to be very careful because some bodies try to reject the organ. What happens to every believer is every believer's body is attempting to reject the new heart. That, that was something from last week. It's very important to remember this. James 4.4 4 says, You adulterous people. He's talking to Christians, I might add. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This is the Christian life. This is it. You can't be the world's friend and Jesus' friend. You can't eat at the table of demons and eat at the table of the Lord. You can't have two masters. You can't have your life and Jesus' life also. You can't go out there and live your best life now and then come here on Sunday and think that you have both your life and his life. They're incongruous. The more of your life you have, the more self you have, the, you have nothing of Jesus. Nothing.
You all once were at peace with sin and at war with God. Every one of you. Every one of you at one time were at peace with sin and at war with God. And what's happened now, and, and God did not ask your permission, he didn't check with you, is that now you are at peace with God and at war with sin. And if you're not at war with sin, then you're not at peace with God. Right? This, this is what I love about New Testament theology. It's actually on one level, logically, very simple. That seems simple. Okay, I'm at, I'm at peace with God. And, and load the machine gun, let's go to war against sin. You're like, okay, that seems simple enough. <laughs> but then you go out in the world, and what happens? Turns out you're pretty friendly with the world. Turns out it's pretty hard to shoot your friend. right? You're like, well, I don't know, he's so nice. He makes me feel so good about myself. All this habitual sin, all these tasty little morsels that I like to enjoy. Why would this, this can't be bad. I need some me time. I need, you know, I need to... What good am I if I'm if right? What good am I if I don't get enough sleep? If I don't get enough to eat? If I'm stressed out all the time? So we go out in the world, and what are we trying to protect? Are we trying to protect the the declaration that God has made in us? Are we trying to 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 be at peace with this and try to protect this peace and be at war with the world, or is it vice versa? As soon as we leave here, we're like, well, you know, God, good luck, good luck trying to keep up with me this week. Right Here I go. I did my bit. I did my church bit. And so now I'm going to go out in the world and I'm not going to think about what I learned. I'm not going to think about the Bible. It's easier to keep it closed. I'm, I'm just not going to think about all that because that's just stressful and that's painful. And, that, and that, I, I don't want that kind of anxiety in my life. And so, so many of us just ignore these things as the week goes on. And then we just come back here. Man, it's super convenient. They confess at the beginning of the service. It's so nice. I don't have to think about it until now. I mean, think about it. There's a guy who actually reads the Bible to us. If you wait long enough, I bet he'll read the whole thing. If he's come here enough years. There has to be this great exchange. Now, the, the, this, is, this is something that pop evangelicalism, I believe, gets wrong. If you are at war with sin, you are at war with sinners. Right? You can love sinners and hate their sin. That's true. But if you're at war with sin, if you really are at war with sin, you're at war with sinners. Because you come into somebody's life and they're doing something that is clearly a sin, and you think, yeah, you know, um, maybe you're bold enough to say something. Maybe they ask. Oh, you're one of those Christian people. Yeah, so we're, we're going to stone homosexuals, huh? And then there you are, and you've got to be... First off, why do they always go there? It's like, is there any other verses in the Bible that you might want to talk about? Any other verses in the Bible? But it's a very complicated question, actually. Should we? But what happens? We don't really, I mean, how well have we really thought through that issue anyway? And so we start, right? Jesus says, what, are you going to be ashamed of his words? Who wrote the Old Testament? Who said that in the Old Testament? Right? You serve a God that at one point told the armies of Israel to go into that nation and take all the babies and throw them off a cliff. You're like, love wins. And, and, and the way that we promote the faith, the way that we hedge, the way that we kind of pick and choose in our minds what is and what isn't truth, I think that we are actually acting like we're ashamed of it more often than we think. The imprecatory psalms. Does anyone know what an imprecatory psalm is? Some of you, I'm sure, do. Those are the psalms where you're, you're praying that God would smite his enemies. Like, bring some hellfire down on those people. 
right? And, and sweet evangelicals are like, well, I can't pray that. I'm supposed to love my enemies. No, no, no. No, th- this actually is love. Right? Now, <laughs> if you want to be the army of Israel that goes tosses babies off a cliff, come and see me because you have a totally different problem. <laughs> Eek. However, if you, if, right, if there are enemies because they are sinners, they are not of the household of God, they are opposed to him in every possible way, and God can either convert them or remove them. And that's not up to you, it's up to him. But how many of us pray that way? How many of us are ashamed to pray that way? Well, and then you get Marcionitism, which is this really weird um, heresy where the God of the Old Testament is actually a different God than the New Testament. Like he matured somewhere. Like he went off and had a little 500-year quiet time. And, and, and he, Jesus is actually in the New Testament a totally different God. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, we are ashamed. We are ashamed. And, and, and if you don't think you are, um, do some word searches in the Bible and, and see, right? Oh, this was a New Year's resolution that Doug Wilson had a few years ago. His New Year's resolution was to hate more. And everybody, of course, freaks out. He's very smart. Everyone goes to his blog to see what he could possibly mean. And what he means is he wants to hate the things God hates more. And, like, could you imagine if we promoted a book study like that? Come and learn to hate like God hates. Where'd everyone go? <laughs> what I am talking about here what Jesus is trying to get us to understand is not easy. It's not. We choose the parts that are easy and we do them over and over and over and over and over again and we ignore the parts that are hard. What does he hate? He hates things. How does he deal with the things that he hates? You hate things. Are they the same things? And how do you deal with the things that you hate? Now, how, how did Peter react to Jesus? Hey, great. You guys have figured out that I'm the Messiah. We're going to go. Now I'm going to go and I'm going to lose. So Peter, who loves Jesus, what is his response? He, he, he takes him aside and starts yelling at him in Yiddish. And, and if this is a person who loves Jesus who's reacting this way, right? This is why intercollegiate battles in the Christian church are so nasty. Even people who love Jesus, who, who are of one another in the body of Christ, get really hot and bothered and angry and, and militant and vicious about this kind of stuff. So if that's true, if Peter's reacting that way, if any of you guys have ever had a debate or, or, or a difficulty or a struggle with another Christian over doctrine or practice or something, you understand this. But, but if that happens in the household of God, what is the world's reaction to Jesus? How does the world react? Well, what do they do? Oh, they, they, they jam some thorns into his forehead, laugh at him and spit on him and make him carry this cross up this road, which was pretty painful. And then they hammer him to it. John 15, 18 through 20. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. 
Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. This is why Christians need to count the cost and consider what alliance and submission to Christ actually entails in the real world. It's not friendship with the world. Having Christ requires an exchange that is costly. And so here is my question. If this is what he is saying to his believers, who hates you? Does anyone revile you that you know of? Is the world completely apathetic to our gathering here together and talking about these things? Right? I'm not going to despise the blessing of being able to gather in a church and have a Bible. There's a great deal to be said about that. But it does actually occasionally make me a little nervous that I don't bother anyone. Is the world's apathy towards us an example of our apathy towards him? The world would love you as its own. Does the world love us as its own? Do the people at your workplace love you as one of their own? I remember this was, this was so embarrassing. My wife and I had a big party just a couple days before we got married. I hadn't been a Christian. I mean, I was such a new Christian. It's shocking how bad of a Christian I was in the early days. So he- here we all are. I got all these coworkers, right? And I got this, this, new past- this new pastor. I've been going to this small little church. It's really great. The guy's really great. He's there, and he's partying with us. And I, I really want to impress him. I want to look cool in front of the, my pastor. He's there partying with everyone. I was like, who does that? That's cool. Mark Driscoll would have never came here over this. <laughs> and I got this coworker who I, I spent a lot of time with. So I say, oh, this is my pastor. He says, pastor, you go to church? I didn't, you go to church? I didn't even know you went to church. And, and there's Dean, who was the pastor at the time. And he looked embarrassed for me because I was living in, I was living in such a righteous way. I, I was living my faith out in, in such, you know, validity, so much oomph, so much zeal that this person who I spent a lot of time with at work didn't even know I went to church. And now, now <laughs> that was painful. But you know how many painful times I've had that? You, you know, I mean, I was at not just my high school reunion, but people meet me and they say, what do you do? And I'm like, well, I... I'm a pastor. And you see that look on their face like, (laughs) you? Really? Huh. They'll take anybody. (laughs) But that's not the same thing, right? right? And and that's embarrassing. But what would hate us? Jesus says they hated me and they'll hate you. And, and sometimes what actually does, should, we should stop and think about the fact that no one cares that we're here or not. You go to work, nobody cares that you're a Christian, right? You go to the family reunion, and they're like, oh, it's the really big hypocrite. It's the biggest hypocrite of all of us. And, and they treat you, they kind of ignore you, but they don't get angry. I mean, when have you ever showed up somewhere and somebody went screaming from the building? When's the last time you showed up at Starbucks to have like to meet with some other Christian friends, and, and the people working there were like, and and they started a rally to come and throw rocks at you, right? Like, no, that never happens to us. And okay, all right, this is what I was saying. It's like we're not going to load up a bus now and go start a riot at the mall. It, it's a much simpler. The people who know you who are not believers, do they care? Are they bothered by it at all? Does it ever create any kind of friction or tension or difficulty in any way? 
Now, the exchange that I'm talking about, how expensive is it? And is it incongruous to talk about salvation in terms of economics? That's what actually the sermon's called, the ledger of salvation. Because there, there is, there's red and black ink in the book. Jesus in this is going to go on, he's going to explain economics. Because he wants people to understand the value of the things that he's talking about. We understand the economics of self very well. Right? We're supposed to deny self, we're supposed to renounce self. We're supposed to, but, but why has God given you yourself? What, right? The world wants to tell women what their, what their bodies are for and how they ought to be used, and you, know, you better take care of it, better not use it. But what I like about Christian women is they understand, those who are having children, understand that a body is given to you to be used for something else. Like, think of the cost on a woman to make a child, to make three children, four children. I could keep going. Right? Think of the cost. That, that, see, this is a good example. The, the woman who understands it's not about me maintaining this body that it, as it was given to me. I was given this thing to use it up. Men were given strength for the same reason. You were not given strength right, to be bodybuilders where you stand up on a stage and just show everyone how strong you are. <laughs> Real masculine strength isn't like that. Real masculine strength is demonstrating the fact that you use it up. You use it up in defense of something, in the labor of something worthwhile, in the defense of something worthwhile. But we know the economics of self very well. This is why Jesus is approaching it in this way. What does it cost you to tell your husband that he's drinking too much? That he's working too much? How much does it cost you, ladies, to tell him that he's yelling too much? You know what it costs. You know what it costs you. You know what it costs the kids. And so I'm not doing that. That's too expensive. <laughs> I, I'm not writing checks on, on myself like that. I'm not going to go over there. I'm not going to do that. You know the cost of telling your boss that you can't work anymore because you have to go home and spend time with the kids. You know what that's going to cost you. You know what it's going to cost you in his eyes. You know what it's going to cost you on, in, in the team that you're working with. Oh, you're the guy that's got to go home and play with his little girly girl, huh? Well, men work. I don't know about you, but men conquer. Men get. Men earn. Right? Have you, have you guys ever worked at a place where the real men stick around and never go home? I actually worked at a place like this. It was horrible. I didn't last long there. I'm not a real man. You know the price to the penny. You know what you will gain if you wear that low-cut shirt. You know what you will gain by not giving yourself fully to the one person who you're supposed to give yourself fully to. Right? Where the economics of self. Oh, I, I'm not giving away that much to that person because I, I would lose. Right? I can't lose that much of myself. Oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to wear this tight shirt because I'm going to gain so much for myself. And this is the economics in which we live. How much does it cost you to call that person that person and ask them how they're doing. I don't have that kind of time. I don't have that kind of... That costs too much. My kids, I love them, know exactly what it costs us to have someone over <laughs> into our home. They know what it costs, right? And suddenly they're all becoming very strict legalists about not working on the Sabbath. Well, I can't clean the bathroom, Dad. Uh, it's the Sabbath. 
And then I'm like, well, that's funny. The Bible says the Sabbath is on Saturday. Ooh. Oh, now then they they go away confused, scratching their head like, he got me, but I don't think he got me. We know how much these things cost us. And and this is the economics of our lives. Now, and and Jesus is talking about economics. We're going to get into it a little bit more here. But who is he talking to? Peter used to own a business. Matthew used to be a tax collector. They understand money. They understand exchange. They understand economics. And so he wants them not, he's not just giving them some mysterious thing, philosophical idea. He wants them to understand it in real value. What are we talking about? The things that you value are not the things he values. You want to hoard self, he wants you to give self away. What does he do? Did he hoard self at all? Did he keep any of it? He used up every drop of himself. Jesus employed this language because he, because this is the way that most people work. We like the e- economics, how much money is coming in, how much money is going out. We all we all pre- pretty much know how that's going in our lives. It's something we keep very close track of. And so he wants okay, now think on this level now. He wants go with me here. To gain a soul, Jesus had to pay with his blood. Okay? So he knows the value of a soul, but what he's telling them is that one human soul is worth more than the world. You're going to take the soul that I've given you and you're going to trade it for the world? Right? If you could be Bill Gates, if you could be, I don't know, pick a famous person, you'd be the president. No, nobody wants to be the president. I'm sorry. But you could be an Academy Award winning actor. You could have all the money in the world, all the power in the world. To gain all of that, what you have to give is your soul. And the soul is worth more than what you're gaining. For no other reason than how long are you actually here for? Okay, you gained the whole world for 40 years, and you lost life for eternity. Like, it doesn't seem like you need a Harvard degree in economics to figure out the math on this. And yet we don't get the math on this. And, And part of why this is so hard for us is that it's very difficult for rich people to get into heaven. Oh, okay, now Mike's going to talk about Bill Gates. Now Mike's going to talk about Bernie Sanders. No, I'm talking about you. Right? Because wealth is something that is compar- it's a comparative measure. Are you rich? Well, compared to who? Okay. There's a lot of people we can compare ourselves to. Right? Nobody here lives on Mercer Island. Nobody lives you know, on Finney Ridge. Most of you are not two-income households. So you think, ah, oh, the, the rich. Jesus is really concerned about the rich. And he has these warnings for the rich, but he's not talking about us because we're poor. Now, most of us actually think of this way. How many of you guys have ever seen a warning to the rich and thought, oh, he's talking to me? But let's just talk about this for a second, right? It's very difficult to to measure wealth in this generation to another generation. There was one time there was some calculator I did online where I figured out, like, what my social status would be in, like, Victorian England or something. And I'd have three servants. You'd be like, what? I can't imagine having servants, but like, what do you call a refrigerator? What do you call a microwave? What do you call an oven? What do you call a wash machine? Right? If you add up all this stuff, right? What? <laughs> no emperor in the history of the world could 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 take Beethoven's symphony around in his carriage with him. Right? There's the king of France, and, he's a, and he lives a decade of life, but he never got to just have like a symphony driving around in his car with him. But, like, watch me. I'll just take this disc. I'm dating myself. I still use CDs in my car. (laughs) 
and you slide that in there, you're like, boom, I got 90 people playing the music I want to play right now. I'm, I'm, I'm always telling my kids this. You study history at all, and there are two things that the extraordinarily rich always do. Two things. Doesn't matter what culture, doesn't matter what time. The top 2% always do these two things. They own land, and they eat meat every day. Like any time in history, because animals are really expensive, and land is really expensive. And you go back 100 years, you go back 500 years, 1,000 years, only the extraordinarily wealthy do these two things, own land and eat meat. Well, I don't own land, mostly through my own mismanagement. That's a confession for another day. But I can't even remember the meal I, ha I didn't have meat in. I don't eat. It's not really a meal unless it has meat. Like a day I didn't have meat. Are you kidding me? Like I don't... I, I put meat on my salad. <laughs> and you think, I'm not rich. I mean, I'm not. I mean, come on. I drive a 98 Honda Civic, right? Because that's the measure of rich. What kind of car you drive? Forget the fact that if you go into the U.S. Census and they have these houses in poverty... The houses in poverty don't have two cars. They just have one. They have a microwave oven. They don't have two TVs. They have one TV. This is, this is poverty? This is poverty level? Now, there, there are measures below that of worse kinds of poverty. But it's very difficult for the wealthy to get into heaven. And this is why Jesus is talking about economics, because rich people don't need him. Rich people don't need him. Now, we come here, and there's some sort of deep, philosophical, spiritual thing that we need, I get, on some level. But it's like we go out outside right now. It's like I don't need to pray to Jesus that, oh, please, Lord, have my car start. It's been a while since I've had to live that way. Right? I'm not, when's the last time any of you actually worried about money? And, and I, don't mean, I don't mean in the modern sense, right? I'm talking like, okay, well, we eat today or we eat tomorrow. We can't do both. When has anyone in this room ever had to make that choice? Well, I guess we've got to give up cell phones because the kids need an education. Are you kidding me? I'm like, whoa, it's been 18 months. I can't renew the phone yet. I can't upgrade yet, but if I just pay 300 bucks, I can. Well, what's 300 bucks? And then we go to the Bible and it says, hey, be careful because it's very difficult for the wealthy to make it into heaven. And you're like, well, man, Bill Gates better watch out. The United States is ranked 11th in gross national income, which averages $60,000 a year. Now, I understand we live in Seattle. It's a lot like San Francisco. That $60,000 does not go as far as it used to, right? It doesn't go as far as my grandpa's day. But let's, how far would it go in the Sudan? How far would it go in Rivne? I was there. I don't know, what they, I don't know what's in the meat they call meat, but it's not meat. You know what I'm saying? It's like sawdust. And I felt really bad because they tried really hard when I was there in Rivne, Ukraine, to buy the best of the best. And the bread that they baked looked gray. And I was like, why is the bread gray? It's kind of interesting. Is this like wheat flour? I'm really excited here. Ooh, something organic. I can go and brag to the Nielsen's about this organic bread I ate. Turns out they put plaster in the uh, flour. It's like, how many of you, when's the last time you were at QSC and you're like, well, let's check the pl how much plaster might be in this? We are the uber-wealthy. We are all about economics. We know exactly how much we make. We know exactly how, how much the next thing we want costs. We know exactly how much right we're going to spend on Christmas. We, we're thinking down the road. I mean, people who are, the, the more stable you are in your, in your life, the further in the future you can think. 
Right? When you meet a homeless person, I, I'm shocked by how short their vision is. You're like, you're worried about what you're doing later today. I'm a little bit more worried about what you're going to do come winter. And, and you kind of feel like, what is wrong with you? How could they possibly think past tomorrow? Right? They don't know where they're going to sleep. They had a sleeping bag and they left it in the bushes and they're hoping it's still there when they get back. And we are people who plan for our retirement. <laughs> so think of how far in the future we can think. And we're really good at that, right? We are so stable in our situation that we can actually think about and plan and save for a retirement. And the thing that we always forget is that bit of life that comes after retirement, that part where you die and you go to heaven and you say, oh, Lord, Lord, I am so glad I finally get to see you. And he says, hey, I don't know you. Who are you? I was hungry. You didn't feed me. I was naked. You didn't clothe me. I was thirsty. You didn't give me any water. I was in jail. You didn't come visit me. You're like, what, what are you talking about? I never, I never saw any homeless people. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Jesus, what are you saying? Yeah. No, I don't, I don't know you because in the world you never came and found me. And me, where I was, was with the lowly. Where I was, was with the humble. Where I was, was with the people who were humiliated. Amen. And, and we don't know him as well as we ought because we don't know him in the world. We have some theoretical concept of him from this and from coming here and listening to these sermons. But he said, come and follow me. Come the way of the cross. Come the way of humiliation. Come of the way of the outcasts. Come of the way of the people who are rejected by the world. And how often do we come in contact with those people? I'm not talking about a heart-mind relationship just between you and God. I'm talking about going into the world and making this exchange. I've got plenty of self to go around. Who needs some? What do you need? Do you need my time? I don't have a lot of wisdom, but what little I have, you can have. Is, it, is this the way that we live? You're like, oh my gosh, you know what? I got tons of money. <laughs> Who needs some? Where are the people I can buy some clothes for? Where are the people I can get some water for? Where are the people I can go and visit in jail? Well, I don't know anyone in jail. Exactly my point. Nobody here knows anyone in jail. And that is to all of our shame. He wants you to think this way. You have so much self. So much. Could he give you more? Could he give you more? And what are you spending it on? Why are you hoarding it? Why are you keeping it locked up safe in, in your protected little ghetto? Your family. Think of all the resources and all, the, all of the self that your family has to give away, and you're hoarding it. You're spending it on yourself. What he says is, hey, you, you want to come with me? Do, do you want to go to a place beyond this world that you will live forever with me and my Father and my Spirit, where all we will do is love one another and serve one another, and they, you will no longer fear anything? You will no longer cry? Come with me. And everyone's like, Woo, oh, <laughs> Woo, take me, take me, take me. Okay, come this way. Down this dark alley? Down this thorny path through the woods? That looks... I don't know. Jesus, the way you're going looks dangerous. I don't know who might be down that alley. <laughs> I'm going to go this way, the wide road. See this highway? 
This is why he's talking about these things in the Gospels. Choose the narrow path. Choose the humble path. Choose the lowly path. Not the big, wide highway with plenty of space on it with lots of lighting. Because that way is the way of death. That is the way where you're going, and all you're going to do is hoard yourself all the way to the end, and then I will have nothing to do with you. You you were ashamed of me all along. You were ashamed of the people that I was with. Because where is he? He's with the lowly. Right? And how many of us are ashamed to just walk up to a homeless person and just start talking to them? How many of us, right? We're going to just go down to the jail and be like, tell me someone who hasn't been visited the whole time they've been here. I'll visit with them. We don't want anything to do with that kind of shame. And, and this is what he's saying. You will come before me and I will be ashamed of you. And I'll be like, take this person away from me because I have nothing to do with them. For Christ, Christ and his gospel. That is the rallying cry. When you are making economic decisions of self, are you going to hoard self? Are you going to give self away? The, the only consideration is Christ and his gospel. What does Christ and his gospel require of me now? Not me, him. What does he want me to do? Where does he want me to go? What does he want me to say? Who does he want me to associate with? What does he want me to give up? That is the way of salvation. That is the way of eternal life. And to hoard self and say, no, 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 I'm going to decide what's best for me. I'm going to decide what's best for my family. I'm going to, to make sure that we're all safe and protected and that we have plenty of money and plenty of time and plenty of self. And all you're doing is piling stones on top of your own grave, an eternal grave. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. How many of your hearts are down at Bank of America? How many of your hearts right, are in your Apple products? How many of your hearts are in your car? How many of your hearts are in your house? And all the things that go along with your house. How many of your hearts are in your children? Ooh. Whoa, whoa, homie. What are you doing going there? Yes, the idol of your children. All your time, all your effort, all yourself just goes to this little tiny bunch. Well, I don't have to suffer and give anything to anybody else because I've got these people right here. And you're like, okay, all right. Cutting the crust off a sandwich is hard. I don't want to belittle what moms have to do. But when it really comes down to what Christ is talking about, is that what he's talking about? Is it you're tired? And you got to remember the fact that so-and-so doesn't like mac and cheese, and so-and-so does, and this kid wants his hot dogs cut, right? There's a lot of difficulty in the home. But is it this kind of difficulty? There's a lot of difficulty driving kids around to sports games, but is that what he's talking about? See, we, we think inconvenience is the same thing as selflessness. Where is your treasure? The thing that you are guarding, the thing that you are hoarding, that is your treasure. That is where your, your heart is. How many of you understand the price of your soul? Your soul is worth more than the whole world. And Peter says, that, right, Christ came and he purchased everyone, everyone's soul, not with gold, not with silver, but with his blood. Now, now let's do the math here. One soul is worth more than the world, and Jesus' blood was valuable enough to buy all the souls. 
That's value. That's wealth. I want that. Who here wants that? And then and we say yes. And then what do we do? We go to the fridge. We say, they didn't leave me any juice. None. They closed my favorite tillies. I go to Costco and they don't have the, the Bisquick I like. Right? I just read about a woman who was in the uh, drive-thru at McDonald's. They ran out of nuggets and she called 911. And I'm like, if that's not modern America, that's modern America. I'm going to now call the police department because, man, I want a 20-piece. Don't be ashamed of Christ. Don't be ashamed of his words. Don't be ashamed of those who are lowly and who are like him, those who are humble, those who have no one in this world. Spend yourself where it is most needed, where it does the most good, where Christ would spend it. Where would he spend it? C.S. Lewis said, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. That is what Jesus is trying to say. Stop aiming at this earth. Stop hoarding yourself. You have been given riches beyond what you can possibly imagine. And there are riches even greater be, beyond the grave that you can, more, it's, Paul says, than you can, any imagination of man has ever conceived. So you go in a, and here's the field and what you find in it is the pearl of great price. And what you're going to do is you're going to go and sell everything that you've got so you can buy this field. You are full, full. What are you spending yourself on? Jesus gives himself. He gives himself to Peter. He gives himself to the disciples. He gives himself to the people who are stoning him and the people who are spitting on him and the people who are nailing him to the cross. He comes and what does he tell Paul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Even now, he has more self to go around than anything you could possibly conceive and, and, you, and you get on your knees and you say, listen, I can't, this is an exchange that's too expensive. He says, hey, I'll give you what you need to do it. I will give you the strength. I will give you the understanding. I will give you the hope to get through it. I will give you joy here because what you think you're giving up is joy. But no, 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 no. Give it up and come and I will give you more joy than you could possibly imagine. So, ladies and gentlemen, this is it. This is what Redeemer needs to do is we need to go out and we need to spend ourselves on the right things. Die by living. Take what you have been given and give it away to those who need it the most. And what you will find at the end is that you have gained, I can't even describe, I can't do math very well, especially this kind of math, comparing what you will gain to what you are losing. This is, this is the call that he is making in our lives. And it is hard. But he is always, always prepared to give you exactly what you need to come along. And amen. amen. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your son. We thank you, Lord, for the, the price that he paid on our behalf. 
Uh, we thank you, Lord God, for all of the glorious gifts that you have provided for us. We pray, Lord, that we would, that we would think of the economics of heaven more carefully. That we would consider, Lord, the, the need in this world, the suffering and the sin, and how much of ourselves we have to, to, to give away. You know us. You know what we are struggling with. You know exactly what conviction we need. You know what comfort we need. And we know, Lord God, that you will deliver us. Fill our mouths with pleas of mercy. And we pray, Lord, that as we, as we sing to you now, Lord, that you would comfort our hearts and that you would give us understanding and that you would bind us up one to, to, together, that we would follow you on this humble path. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.